If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Before we get started, please allow me a moment to share some important information with you. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderInMyFam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Your support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Jan Hammer and Connie Land. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Last but not least, we're currently about four months away from CrimeCon, the true crime convention in New Orleans. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going, and I'll be on Podcast Row. I hope I'll see you there, too. If you're going, stop by and say hi. If you still need to register, visit CrimeCon.com, complete your registration process, and at checkout, use my promo code CRIMINOLOGY19 to save 10% off your standard badges. Again, that promo code is CRIMINOLOGY19, and you'll save 10% on your standard badges. Thank you, and now on with the show. In 2014, 53-year-old Kathy Blair was recently divorced, and after a short, problematic marriage, was seeking a fresh start. The California native thought she had found just that when she moved into a rented home on the 4600 block of Tamarack Trail in Austin, Texas. Sadly, Kathy's life would come to a violent end in that home by year's end. Kathy enjoyed her work as choir director of the Christian Choral Society of Austin. Her efforts to bring the joy of music to homeschooled students of all ages for a decade touched countless lives as hundreds of students had interactions with Kathy. On Friday, December 5th, 2014, Kathy spent a busy day helping her students prepare for a special performance at Pioneer Farms, a living history park and museum that is well known in the Austin area. Following the performance at Pioneer Farms, Kathy was tired. She was looking forward to unwinding and relaxing over the weekend. She told her friends that she planned to spend a quiet Friday night at home. 
In the early morning hours of Saturday, December 6th, a burglar entered Kathy's home through an unlocked back door. They crept quietly along the interior of the home until they came upon Kathy asleep in her bed. Kathy awoke suddenly and jumped out of bed confronting the intruder, and she was stabbed in the neck. The dark figure left Kathy mortally wounded in her bedroom and escaped into the darkness. Hours later, at around 12 p.m., Kathy's son arrived at her home to visit her. He was surprised that his mom wasn't there to greet him, and more surprised that he didn't get a reply as he entered the house. As he looked for his mom, he headed towards her bedroom, and it's there that he discovered her on the bedroom floor in a pool of blood. He frantically called 911 at 12.12 p.m. and waited for help to arrive. Police and emergency personnel responded quickly and arrived at the home at about 12.20 p.m. Outside the home, they found Kathy's devastated and distraught son pacing. The first responders entered the home and checked on Kathy's condition, but it was too late. There was nothing they could do. The kind and beloved choir teacher was dead. Investigators began working the scene and quickly established that Kathy was likely killed during the commission of a burglary. Several pieces of Kathy's jewelry were missing. The crime scene was rich with valuable clues and yielded prints and a shoe impression that belonged to the killer. The major break in Kathy's case didn't come until a neighbor of hers realized that he may have captured crucial video of Kathy's killer. This neighbor had been walking through the streets close to his home around the time of Kathy's murder. He was filming deer with a video camera equipped with night vision. It wasn't until he watched it afterwards that he realized he may have had some valuable material for police. The video revealed a man getting out of a car and walking up Tamarack Trail in the direction of Kathy's home. The car appeared to be a dark color late 1990s Toyota Camry. When police questioned Kathy's landlord, James Willett, he told them that he had hired a man named Timothy Parlin to do handyman work to Kathy's home prior to her moving in. Parlin had a criminal record, and as it turned out, a sister with a green 1999 Toyota Camry. Police brought Parlin in for questioning, and he denied any involvement in Kathy's murder. Parlin's sister told police that her brother had borrowed her car around the time of the murder. Police examined the vehicle for evidence or clues that might connect it to Kathy's murder, and they struck pay dirt. Kathy Blair's blood was found inside of that car. Police questioned Timothy Parlin once again and confronted him with the blood evidence. This time, he began talking, but he claimed he didn't kill Kathy. Instead, he implicated another man. Parlin claimed that the brother of a woman his nephew was dating was actually the killer. His name was Sean Gant Benezelkar. Timothy Parlin admitted that he and Sean had been burglarizing area homes for weeks and that they barely knew each other, only meeting after Parlin's nephew started dating Sean's sister. Parlin told police that he was the lookout and getaway driver on the night of Kathy Blair's murder and that his partner in crime had entered Kathy's house by himself, and that he alone had killed her. Police felt that they definitely had some answers, and when evidence from the crime scene in Kathy's home matched up with Sean Gant Benezelkar, 
they arrested both men in connection with Kathy's murder. Both men were charged with capital murder. Police also suspected that these two men may have been involved in another horrible crime in Austin that same month. A little over a week after Kathy's murder, Sidney and Billy Shelton, both in their 80s, were found dead by their caretaker in their north-central Austin home after an apparent burglary. Even though authorities have said that they think Gant, Benzelkar, and Parlin are responsible for the Shelton's murders, they have never been charged in relation to the crime. Gant, Benzelkar, and Parlin both went to trial for the murders of Kathy Blair, each man facing separate court proceedings. Parlin was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. However, a mistrial was declared in the court proceedings against Gant Benezelkar after a single juror voted against convicting him of Kathy's murder. This led to a retrial and unfortunately put Kathy Blair's family through the pain and heartache of another trial. Finally, after three total trials and four years, Gant Benezelkar was found guilty by a jury in November of 2018 and like his co-conspirator Timothy Parlin, was sentenced to life in prison. These last four years have been tough, not only for Kathy Blair's family, but for the many students whose lives Kathy touched through the gift of music and song. Kathy's sister Kirsten joined me to discuss Kathy's case and the long road to see justice done for her. That conversation is next. Welcome, Kirsten, and thanks for joining me to discuss your sister Kathy's case with us today. It's my pleasure, Mike. And I wanted to mention right from the beginning, Kirsten, that as I researched your sister's case, I found so many positive mentions about her on various sites, on YouTube, and that must make your family proud to know that so many people cared for and respected Kathy. Yeah, it really does. You know, we've um, just been through um, a few trials. Um, luckily, we've had convictions, which is which is great. But um, you know, my sister was from Texas. Uh, well, my sister was from California, but moved to Texas um, in college and just stayed. So she made friends there. She made a career there and uh made a lot of friends there and she uh she was a choir director but a choir director of homeschool children so she taught choirs for uh children from preschool age to high school age and these are high school kids who are homeschooled so they don't really get a chance to get out and socialize as much cuz they're not in you know public schools. So Kathy's program was not only, you know, a chance for them to be in a choir and sing, but it was also their, in many cases, their only social outlet. And, you know, Kathy really made all of that happen. So when you talk about her being beloved, um, you know, there's, there's some depth to that because her, she was loved by her students, loved by the parents of the program. Then, of course, she had um, lots of friendships, and she was just, you know, an outgoing, fun-loving person. Um, 
She was funny. He just wanted to be around Kathy. And uh, so, yeah, from the from the kids in her program to her uh, parents who just thought of her as one of their family because, you know, as you know, uh, uh, when you're a, a teacher of a choir, your student, you have your students year after year after year. So, um, and then there are productions and there are, um, uh, choir rehearsals, and she also did voice lessons to these students. So they, the parents and kids really thought of her as one of the family. So it just, when you say beloved, um, it just, it, it went pretty deep. It was uh, more of a family connection. And, and I certainly felt that when I went to Austin for the trials and was just embraced by uh, what some of her friends called the Kathy Nation of just people who loved her in Austin. It was um, was pretty amazing to see. Yeah, and I thought that was a pretty unique position, being a choir and music teacher to students that were homeschooled. <clears throat> Whenever I've heard the term homeschooled, I've never thought about classes like art or music or that kind of thing for homeschooled students. I always assume that these were classes that those students just didn't get to, to take. But those are important classes and open up children to creative and artistic experiences. And I, I think Kathy gave her students an opportunity to really experience those things. So that must have been really rewarding for her personally. Yeah, it really was. You know, she um, she loved music from from when we were growing up. She knew, you know, she started in, I think, a junior high choir, uh, realized she could sing. She always had a voice, whether it was shouting, screaming when we were growing up. Um, but she realized, I think, in junior high that she could really sing and had this gift and um, just always loved music and singing, was always the standout, was always the star. And um, and she wanted to really share that. And um, she, uh, I wanted to say, too, Kathy had so much talent uh, as, a, as a singer, uh, majored in vocal performance uh, in college, and then at UT Austin, got her master's in vocal performance, she had the talent to really move on and, you know, become an opera singer or go that route. But she really, you know, she had um, two children of her own. and But she also really just had a heart for teaching. And uh, she wanted to share her gift with students and, uh, and mentor them and teach them how to sing properly, teach them the joy of singing, and uh, and it was really kind of uh, something. So, uh, you know, she's given a gift to all, a lot of these students and, uh, and who've become friends and, again, family, <laughs> uh, uh, just the gift of, of song. Um, but how to sing properly, that was very important to her, you know, the, your, your voice as an instrument. So uh, it, it was a wonderful gift she gave to her community, and she absolutely loved Austin, the city. You know, that was home to her. How long had she taught music at the time she was killed? Oh, my gosh. 
Um, let me think about this. How old are her children? Um, 30. Yeah, maybe 20, 20 years, something like that. 20, 25 years. Yeah, so to get to do what she really enjoyed and help people, uh, it's not often that a lot of people get to do their their dream job, which it, it sounds like that might have been her dream job. Yeah, I think so. And it kind of morphed into this. This wasn't her idea. I think someone else was doing this program before on a much smaller scale, and Kathy came along and really made it something big. Um I know someone said when we were having the trials that uh, they were having trouble picking a jury because so many people knew about Kathy, knew someone who had gone through her program or knew a family member uh, or just knew the program. So uh, (laughs) it was tough finding uh, an an unbiased jury, (laughs) but they managed to do it. And you had mentioned that she had come from California. Most of your family was out in California, I take it. Um, Kathy lived by herself in, in Texas? Yeah, she she did. I mean, she was um, married for, gosh, how long she married for? 15, 20 years um, to her children's dad. She has um, two children in their 20s. Um, and um, and they divorced, and she was on her own for a little while, then met her next husband, um, and that marriage didn't last long. They, I don't think they even made it two years. So, and it, unfortunately, it was, it was a situation where she wanted to, she needed to get away from that relationship. It was... I don't think physically abusive, but verbally abusive, and it just wasn't the right decision for her to make to marry this person. So um, she was in a situation where she just had to get away from this man in her life, and she did that through the help of, again, her some of her uh, homeschool choir friends, her church friends, and um, got some temporary housing, and then was looking for a place to live, a rental that she could afford again. Um, so back to square one and found uh, found this house on Tamarack Trail that was going to be her um, her new beginning. Her, you know, what I uh, ironically called it, her safe house. You know, so. And she wasn't there very long uh, when she was murdered. She was there a few months, is that correct? Yeah, not e- definitely not even a year. I think she was there for maybe eight months, something like that. It was a, a new home. It was a little dark and dingy. She was doing her best to kind of lighten it up. I know um, she, it was like... She painted the walls like a cream color because they were gray, and she didn't like that. And she really, you know, started making it into um, just a real happy, light place for herself. And, uh, and yeah, that was going to be her new beginning. And on that Saturday, December 6th, Kathy's son went to the house to see his mom. And what did he find when he went there? Yeah, well, he had gone, uh, he's in the military, so he was on leave 
um, you know, for December, and Kate was, was living at home again. And he had a room in the house, and the night before, he had gone out to a Christmas party or something, and instead of coming home, I guess, you know, they were... Uh, they were responsible and just kind of stayed there overnight. And he came home the next morning with a, a friend of his. I guess he had tried to contact Kathy, um, his mom, that morning, and um, of course didn't return his texts. His texts, and she, he just said, "Oh well, that's you know, that's so like her." You know, Kathy tended to be, you know. Not careless, but she always had so much going on that if she didn't return a text, you go, okay, she's got, she's doing something else right now. Not unusual, but he just kind of had a sense to go check up on her. And uh, so I think it was around 11 that morning, he and his friend pulled up um, and his, his friend's truck was still in the driveway. So they had taken uh, my nephew's truck out that night. So. Uh, anyway, got out of my nephew's truck. He came in and, of course, you know, called for her. She didn't respond, looked in her room and, um, you know, found a, 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 the room ransacked. Um, she had a big jewelry box that was almost like a piece of furniture. It was uh, like a, a small chest of drawers by the the door to the the door to the room and that had been knocked over all the drawers were pulled out and so he walked over that and then on the other side of the bed um unfortunately found his mom there and she was clearly you know it was a real bloody scene apparently and he um you know called 911 and um you know we all heard the 911 tape when he testified at the trial, and it's just the most horrific thing you could imagine. Yeah, I can't even imagine how tough it must have been for him to to find his mom like that. I don't think anybody knows until they're in that situation. Once the rest of your family found out what happened, I imagine you were all in shock and grief stricken. How did how did you all handle that? Well, I mean, you don't handle it well. You don't know what to do. I mean, you know, uh, shock is real. Um, personally, I was, um, I didn't hear till that night. I was uh, out doing a, an event for the holidays, um, wasn't looking at my phone that much. I came back kind of, you know, and I'm California time. So anyway, I came back kind of, you know, in the later in the evening and to find all of these texts from my niece and nephew saying, call my dad, call my dad. And um, so this is my sister's ex-husband. And so I called him and, uh, you know, to his credits, um, he broke the news to me. His, his, uh, my niece and nephew didn't have to, um, you know, break the news. He did that for me. And from all accounts, you know, Kathy was well-liked, she was respected, she didn't have any enemies. So I, I can only imagine that after the initial shock wore off that you all must have been thinking that this was the last thing that would happen to somebody like Kathy. Well, 
we um, none of us really liked her ex husband, um, the second husband, and so immediately we all thought, oh, it's him. Uh, so, and, and you know, Kathy tended to have some drama in her life. I don't know why some people just tend to attract drama. So, I mean, I, I, yes, surprised and shocked, but it's like, okay, here we go. This is happening now. And, um, you know, you're mad, you're upset, you're delirious. Uh, it was, you know, kind of, kind of all of the above. And, uh, yeah, we were, um. We were upset, but you want to make sense out of it right away, too. So, you know, we pinned it on her ex-husband right off the bat. Um, she had a memorial service. We didn't want to see him. We didn't want him to be there, uh, you know, just because we knew that it was. Never in a million years would you think that this was a random act and somebody broke into her home and did this. You would just never think that. It just doesn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. And, and early on, I, I, from what I've read, the police felt that the killer or the killers may have known Kathy or been close to her, or had some kind of connection to her. And that sort of, did that reinforce what you were already suspecting? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, oh, another thing is Kathy didn't want her ex-husband to know where she was living. So that was just kind of an indication to us that, okay, she's kind of hiding here. And um, she tended, like I said, to be a little careless because she was doing so many things in her life. That night, in fact, uh, she had had a Christmas concert where they all dress up in uh costumes and go Christmas caroling with her students. And she had done that that night. And so she came home, um, had a glass of wine, <laughs> and and went to bed, and she forgot to lock her back door. And this was not unusual for her. Uh, it was unlocked. And that's how the, the killers gain entry. Yeah. I mean, I think they would have gotten in anyway. Or uh, one person. It wasn't two two people. It was one person. So, so one uh, one person did the driving. Um, his name is Tim Parlin, and the one that uh, actually did the deeds' name is Sean Gant and Alcazar. And they're both uh, they're they've both been committed of capital murder, um, uh, life, no possibility of parole. And and it's good that police had some leads to go on early on that led to their identities. I think they had what an eyewitness description. Uh, at least one person had seen uh, suspicious people in the area. Yeah, and this is the crazy thing about this case. So if it wasn't my family, you know, I would just think that this is the most tr fascinating true crime case. Uh, what happened was. About the time that they think Kathy was killed, one between one and two, I think, in the morning of the sixth, um, a neighbor of Kathy's was had uh, just received a um, what is it? Fleur Fleur camera. It's yeah, a one of the, like infrared night in, vision yeah, type infrared cameras. Camera, yeah, infrared camera, right to. Uh, 
to help um, track deer. And so you can um, take videotape, and it shows it's really a heat-sensitive light. So it doesn't show an actual image, but, uh, but it shows where the heat is. So if you're, for instance, walking behind somebody, you would see a kind of red outline of their body. And he had just received this new camera, was testing it out. He was a deer hunter. There's a foresty area nearby. And he was literally walking around the neighborhood at that time with the camera. And he, there was nothing, of course, it's one in the morning, there's nothing on the streets. But he takes the camera and realizes, oh, a car's parked kind of in the area where no houses are. And, but they're walking toward the neighborhood um, two streets down from him, actually toward Kathy's house. So he, for a time in this video, and the jury saw the video, walked directly behind this guy and got his outline. So you can't see a picture of who it is. You can see the car, and you can see this person walking toward Kathy's house. Uh, later, you know, you have phone records. They pin down these two guys. You get the phone records, and uh, you realize they're both at this place at this time, and there's two guys, and there's a short kind of, uh, you know, fat guy, for lack of a better word, and there's a tall guy with a broad shoulders and a slow gait, and he's the one who was walking toward Kathy's house, and that we now know is Sean Gant. So this guy just randomly uh, filmed this. Oh, and then he went to, uh, I think he he went away that weekend and came back to Austin, heard this story and said, oh my gosh, this has happened in my neighborhood. And I think this film I took might be helpful. And he turned it into the police and it became very important. And he testified in all, all, uh, all of the trials. Wow. And then they actually triangulated their cell phone usage right to where the car was almost. Yes. You know, it, uh, within range of, uh, you know, the, there's a whole education on where the cell towers are, but it was definitely pointed in Kathy's neighborhood and they would have had no other reason, both of them to be at this particular place and time and uh, on that uh, night. <laughs> As far as you know, or anything that came out in court, did Kathy know or either of these guys or have any kind of interactions with them uh, at some point? Well, yes, she had met the guy who was the driver. His name's Tim Harlan, and he did landscaping work at Kathy's house. Months earlier, uh, the landlord had hired him to... Uh, fix a drain and do some work in the back uh, of the house. And Kathy had, well, actually, he, the landlord had asked Kathy, is, is he doing a good job? It seems to be taking him a while to do this job, like weeks. He'd come on the weekends, I think. And she said, well, actually, no, he's kind of you know, slacking on the job, he's smoking a cigarette, one time he brought a friend, and uh, and so the landlord fired him. 
from the job. It turns out, and I didn't learn this till the trial, but it turns out the landlord knew Tim Parlin uh, through his brother. Uh, the landlord and Tim Parlin's brother were friends, and they all went to the same church together. And so that's that's where that connection was. Tim Parlin was an ex-convict. The landlord knew that, and hired him anyway, um, trying to probably just give him some work. But uh, And then it turns out he knew that house. He'd done work at the house before with his brother. They, the, I think his brother did some construction projects at the house, too. Uh, the landlord used to live in that house. So they're, they were all very familiar with the house and uh, had been there before. And Kathy did meet Tim Parlin. Um, as far as Gant, the uh, the other guy, they hadn't known each other very long, Tim Parlin and Gant. So that's another end of the story. <laughs> well, and both of them had shady backgrounds, is that correct? Um, no, actually it's not. Uh, Tim Parlin had been convicted for jewelry robbery, burglary, breaking and entering, and attacking a police officer, he had served time. Uh, if his, he was sentenced to ten years. I'm not sure how how, how long he actually served. But the other person, Gant, uh, pretty clean record. And uh, I I don't know what would have made him do this. I think if there was there was a drug angle. Well, I should tell you how these two are connected, which is another kind of interesting story. So Tim Parlin, the landscaper, had a nephew, and the nephew was dating um, a woman who turned out to be Sean Gant's sister. So what happened was the, the detectives realized that Tim Parlin was was connected through the landlord and did some work at Kathy's house. And from there they uh they were honing in on him and they went to his uh, kind of hotel apartment and ended up searching the uh, his apartment and found a, a receipt for a pawn shop. So they went to the pawn shop and uh, checked out this receipt. It was a uh, gold nugget necklace. And we found out later that was Kathy's necklace. He had pawned it on the the morning after December 6th when uh, when Kathy was killed. And also the pawn shop guy said, oh, well, we have... uh, surveillance video, too, in the parking uh, area, so you're welcome to look at that. Well, they saw Tim Parlin in his car uh, driving. It it wasn't his car. It was his sister's car, but they got the license plate number, went to the sister's house. The sister, who was the nephew's mom, and Sean Gant's sister all lived in the same house at the time, so they that's when they kind of honed in on Tim Parlin 
and Gant, and then they questioned Tim Parlin, and Tim Parlin named Gant as the killer. So then they went to Galveston, where Gant was from, interviewed him um, after a long, long uh, session in Galveston, he ended up committing, uh, confessing to committing the crime, and doing the murder. So they're they're arrested. They go to trial. What was the court proceedings like for you? The court proceedings were, you know, you can approach it from two different realms, I guess. Uh, the, the Gantt trial was difficult because he's sitting there and I was convinced that he was my sister's killer. Uh, however, he didn't look back. He didn't make eye contact with anybody. He was very stone-faced, not much emotion. He did get up and testify. I should say that the first trial ended up as a mistrial because of one juror wasn't able to, didn't, didn't want to convict him which was super disappointing. Uh, but uh, that trial was not as bad as I thought it would be. Um, again, you know, I was pretty much the family representative. My mom, no one wanted my mom to go. Um, and Kathy's uh, son and daughter didn't go, uh, didn't want to be there. <laughs> Her son testified, but... Uh, so I was pretty much the family rep uh, sitting there, although, like I said, Kathy had a whole Austin family. So, you know, I uh, her Austin sisters were there sitting right next to me. Um, one woman in particular, her name's Becky, was with me the whole time. And so I just kind of felt just this aura of protection and love just sitting with my sister's sisters, other sisters, <laughs> And that was very comforting to me. And honestly, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Um, Sean Gant did take the stand and recanted his confession. And, you know, I saw right through it. But he's very, ed he's educated, he's smart. He was a former high school chemistry teacher. And if you didn't, know what I knew about him, I think you might be convinced, but uh, he's one of those guys who's just the smartest guy in the room, as the prosecutor said, And but uh, he's not smart enough to uh, get himself off of a life sentence, <laughs> which happens. So. And that's, uh, that's the outcome, so they were convicted and they were both sentenced to life? Yes, they were. Oh, that's that's fantastic to hear that somebody's not like running around still on the loose and you don't have answers. It, you know, not that it'll bring your sister back, but to know that they're not going to hurt anybody else. That's oh, that's... definitely. And and then um, a, a week later, after my sister's murder, there was an elderly couple that was killed brutally, um, and and my sister was brutally murdered. Um, that's another thing I should mention about being at the trials. Uh, there were some parts I didn't stay for, like the autopsy, but I got enough information to know that she fought for her life in that room. And 
there was another elderly couple that was murdered um, by the same pair. Uh, they didn't have enough evidence to convict Sean Ghent of that murder, but uh, by all indications, he was there too. It was the same same ammo, uh, and yeah, it was just uh, just awful. And we're just so thankful that they're not walking around to do this to anyone else. And my um, niece and nephew, especially my niece, can feel safe. And it's wonderful. So many families don't get this. And it is a bit of closure for us. We can move on. Uh, We know that at least we can be safe. We don't have, you know, I hear of uh, all of these uh, cold case crime situations where the killers are out there, maybe never to be found, and these poor families. I mean, we just had one month of not knowing who it was, and we were just beside ourselves with worry and fear, and and I have to hand it to the Austin Police Department, and then just good people who came forth with evidence and their stories, and, you know, in this case... Uh, the, the the detectives, the prosecutors, I mean, everybody just did 110% to make sure that our family got justice. And this is one case where just think everything went right. Uh, and it's a good outcome, as good as can be in, in a case like this. Um, how would you like for everyone to remember Kathy? Oh, my gosh. Um, that's a hard one. You know, it's... Uh, I'm her little sister, so to me, she just hung the moon <laughs> and still does. Uh, she was funny. She was loud, but in a good way. Uh, she was thoughtful, uh, driven, a mentor, a teacher. Uh, she was a little frantic. You know, she was one of those. She could. Uh, somebody said it and it just totally nailed it. You know, she was always running in heels. <laughs> uh, always running, always something else to, to to take care of and to do, but all done out of love. And and also, I have to mention, she was the most excellent mom to, to her children and, and my template for, uh, for how a mom should be. Just super loving, caring, anything for those kids, but, but raised with boundaries and saw their mom just with a great work ethic. And, um, those two are, are going to, going to do great in life because of her. So well, yeah, all of the well, above. <laughs> well, that's a, a good way to remember the, the good things about her and the good times and celebrate her life and not dwell on her death. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do, Mike. For you to share that with us uh, really means a lot, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It's 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 always a pleasure talking about my sister. Uh, you know, we love her to death, and we hope to keep her memory alive through, yeah, just talking about her and not trying to hide this under the carpet like, oh, this is an awful thing that happened. We don't want to relive it. Uh, we don't want to relive the the crime and the murder, but we do want to relive all of our wonderful days with Kathy, and that's that's what we're trying to do going forward. 
Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend to the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Thank you.